Well, as we anticipate the coming of Christmas, a high holiday of the Christian year, we are reading through this book that explains the origins of another holiday, that called Purim, which is a Jewish holiday. Every year it is celebrated with great excitement, and it's, it's uh, very much a, a holiday of gathering, of celebrating, of, of even shouting and singing. And every year when they gather together, uh, observant Jews will read the book of Esther together. It's read publicly. And the extended reading and reciting of Scripture is very much part and parcel of Jewish communal life and Jewish holidays and, and Jewish community. I think it's something I think that we as Christians very much could learn from them and uh, rediscover for ourselves, the reading of entire books of the Bible together as a celebration of who we are and what God has brought us through and done for us. But this is one big celebration, Purim. And as they're reading the book of Esther, everyone, especially the kids, waits expectantly for just this part of the story, the beginning of chapter 3, because this is the point at which the reading of the word becomes interactive. As this guy Haman enters the picture, there is now a response in the reading. Every time Haman's name is mentioned, all 53 times, people boo and hiss and shout and make a huge ruckus. Kids are given these kind of spinny noisemaker rattle things that, that go around and go, and they try to sort of drown out the name of Haman. And, and they call him out and they, they shout him down and jeer, which of course is ironic as we read this text, because we recognize the only thing in the world that Haman actually wanted, the one thing he sought the most, was to be honored by everyone. And he will be honored or heads will roll. And here we are, these 2,500 years later, and people still, every year, publicly shame him for sport. One of the many ironies of the book of Esther. Well, we're about a quarter of the way through the story here, and this is right where we would expect the main conflict to come into play, whether you're watching a movie, or reading a novel, or writing a novel, or whether we're reading an ancient scroll, apparently. The main conflict finally comes to the fore with the rise of Haman. You can boo and hiss if you want when I say his name, but it might be a little distracting for me and everyone around you. Uh, but you, all that came before this, the, the deposing of the old queen Vashti, the choosing and, and coronating of the new queen Esther, it's all set up for this conflict that comes to, to the fore now with the, the rise of Haman and his entering into the text. And it is, again, another of these ironies in a book filled with irony, because at this point, we're finally thinking that things are happening for God's people. Good things. We've got a Jewish woman on the throne as queen. Now Mordecai, a Jewish man who, who as a governing official, has saved the king's life. And it's been written down in the annals. And it looks like things are going to go really well. And just when everything's looking up, it takes a hard turn. And it all falls apart with chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, we are not exactly sure how much time has elapsed between the foiled plot in chapter 2 and the events at the beginning of chapter 3. Long enough 
for a major shakeup to have taken place in the Persian court, we see that the long lists of the king's sages and advisors with their hard-to-pronounce names are now replaced by one guy with a very easy-to-pronounce name, Haman. Haman, here he is. And this guy maybe is, is raised up to a previously unknown position in response to the assassination attempt. That has been suggested. We, we don't know it from scripture or from secular history, but it makes sense. I can't trust all these many, many people that might conspire with each other for my death, so I'm going to place one person with a lot, a lot of authority and trust one person who I think is very much like me, and he is very much like him. Another irony, of course, the last chapter ended with Mordecai's faithfulness going completely unrewarded, no recognition, no prize, no promotion. And this chapter begins with the sudden advancement of Haman, and it's not just routine. I need you to realize that this isn't just it was his turn and he'd put in his years or something and he was due for a promotion. The, the author of this goes out of his way to three times use three different terms in verse one alone to describe what is happening for Haman. We read Ahasuerus honored Haman. He advanced him or elevated him, and he set him on a throne above all the officials. So who is this guy? I've mentioned before that he is very Ahasuerish, very much like the king himself. I would even call him Ahasuerus Jr. in many ways. It's like someone boiled down all the worst things about King Ahasuerus and poured them into a guy, and the result is Haman. Remember that anti-drug commercial from the 80s where the dad finds the drugs and he says to the kid, where did you learn about this? And the kid's like, from you, all right. I learned it from watching you. Everyone makes fun of that commercial now. I remember it being a powerful thing. But that's kind of what's going on here. At the end of this book, spoiler alert, the king will punish Haman for everything he's done. And as he gets up onto the gallows, I can imagine Haman looking at him and saying, King, I learned this all from watching you. The other thing, perhaps the most important thing we need to know about Haman, is notice he also, like Mordecai, is introduced by way of his genealogy. We mentioned that Mordecai was the descendant of a king, King Saul. We point back toward Kish, the father of Saul, when we look at his lineage. And here we find that Haman is the descendant of a king as well, the Amalekite king Agag. And the author of this book wants to make sure you don't forget it. Five times he references Haman as Haman the Agagite. To fully understand what's going on here, we actually have to look back about 700 years further yet before these events. Remember, as the people were coming into the Holy Land, there were lots of enemies that they fought, but one group of them stands out, and that is the Amalekites. And yeah, I know all the different ites get really confusing with each other, but you remember the Amalekites. They're the ones that uh, the Israelites were fighting when Moses was holding his staff up, and as long as his arms were up high, they would be winning, and when it began to come down, the tide of the battle would turn. That was the Amalekites. And there was a great, great beef between these peoples, the Israelites and the Amalekites, based on how, as they were coming into the land, they were harassed and attacked and ambushed at every turn by the Amalekites. Sometime later, when Saul was the king, we read in 1 Samuel 15, the words of the prophet Samuel, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. 
So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tel Aim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So Agag gets away with it, right? Well, no, keep reading. Samuel comes back into the picture, Samuel the prophet, and he says to him, what do I hear? What is the sound in my ears? It sounds like the lowing of oxen and bleating of all sorts of additional lambs, and, and I hear the sound of all sorts of animals. What's going on? And Saul kind of gets all sheepish, and, well, we thought we'd give people some of the, you know, spoils, and I kept a lot of it for myself. He says, why is Agag still alive? Get him! Bring him here! And, and of course, it's a, a kind of a sad picture because Agag thinks that the whole thing's over and he comes cheerfully and Samuel then cuts him to pieces before the Lord. So, I mean, this is, this is about as bad as a feud can get, right? The Agagites and the Benjamites, especially those who are descendants of King Saul. I would say this ancient feud between these two groups makes the Capulets and the Montagues or the Hatfields and McCoys look like a, a friendly rivalry between high school hockey teams. All right, even, even the Jews and the Samaritans did not have this level of bad blood. It seemed to have come to an end, though. In 1 Chronicles 4, Hezekiah's army struck down, quote, the remnant of the Amalekites, but apparently some have survived. And this guy, then, is the descendant of King Agag. It's possible that in letting Agag live, Saul had spared his entire family, and when Samuel dealt with the problem, he only killed the patriarch himself. We don't know exactly. Others have suggested that maybe he's not literally a descendant of this king, but he's called an Agagite because he has that kind of way about him, and he's doing something poetic here. Personally, I don't see it. It seems to me that he's, he's showing us how these two guys are continuing with this continued conflict that has been going on for ages. So back to the present, and by the present I mean 470-ish BC. Here we have Mordecai in his station at the gate as an official, not having been promoted. And as he stands there, the nobility would regularly pass by, coming and going. Obviously, that's what gates are like. And by order of the king, everyone needed to bow down and honor Haman whenever they saw him. And everyone did when he walked by. Everyone, that is, except Mordecai. It's important, I think, for us to note he was not trying to start an uprising or even being overly conspicuous about what he was doing. It went unnoticed largely for a while. He was just declining to take a knee here because he felt it would be wrong. We are not told exactly why. What exactly was his reasoning in refusing to do this? Secular history tells us that the act of bowing down to pay honor was standard operating procedure in the Persian Empire. It wasn't unusual. If that's all this was, Haman wasn't demanding something extra of his people. It was not even unusual for God's people to bow down to foreign kings as a sign of respect in Scripture. Moses bows before Jethro, the high priest of Gideon. Abraham bows before the Hittites. Even Daniel, dealing with a, a foreign power that had brought them into exile. Remember, he'd been thrown into the lion's den. And the king the next morning runs in. He's like, Daniel, are you okay? If I was Daniel, I'd have some words for the king. But what does Daniel say? Oh, king, live forever. 
Maybe, how about not? But there is a sense of bowing down and showing honor. And, and even into the New Testament, Romans 13, give honor to whom honor is due. So why is it then that Mordecai won't do this? Well, perhaps Haman is going further in what he demands. And I think we do see this in the text. The two Hebrew terms that he uses are not the normal terms for just bowing down as a sign of respect. They're kara and hava, and when used in tandem in the Old Testament, they always describe someone bowing before God in reverence. This is the only place that this is, these two terms are used together, talking about someone bowing before a man, or in this case, not bowing before a man. It literally means to bend the knee and fall on your face. Remember in Psalm 95, oh, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before our Lord, our God, our Master. That is those two words together. Or in 2 Chronicles 7, when the temple is dedicated, we read, when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. This is the kind of thing that apparently Haman is demanding. And it's been given to him, but not by Mordecai. Now, it's been questioned how it could be that Haman wouldn't notice one person not bowing when everyone else does. That seems like that might be very obvious. You ever see that picture uh, online? It's, it's uh, from Nazi Germany, and it's a crowd of people all giving the Nazi salute, and there's one guy in the middle of them like this, and there's a, a circle that says, be this guy. Well, I think that the reason he doesn't see is because we're thinking of a gate as being kind of a small thing, like the gate in your fence at home. This is a gate complex. This is a place filled with people. And Haman is not the kind of guy who looks directly at his subjects. No, no, they can behold him. He probably looks slightly up. He's probably the kind of guy who, who when he, he goes under an enormous arch that's 50 feet tall, bows his head slightly as if he might bump his head on it. And so I don't think it's too surprising that he doesn't notice what's going on until it's brought to his attention. You see, his fellow servants, Mordecai's fellow servants, do notice. And it's an issue for them. And they pester him and question him day after day, demanding to know why he alone is not following the king's orders to bow down and put his face to the ground anytime Haman enters the scene. And once they learn that Mordecai is a Jew, they stop trying to persuade him, and instead they rat him out. Like rats. Apparently in Persia there is no snitches-stitches policy. Maybe they rat him out because they're upset that he ratted out their fellow guards. Maybe they were in with the two who were conspiring. We don't know exactly why, but we know there seems to be some latent, under-the-table anti-Semitism. And maybe this helps us understand a little bit why Mordecai says to Esther, tell no one who you are, what your national origin is, what God you serve. To me, the plainest reading is that the reason these narcs even know about Mordecai's Jewish identity is that this was his answer to the many questions of why he does not bow down. Because I'm a Jew. I can't do it. One of the few things we know about Mordecai is that he's all for keeping one's religious identity under wraps in order to avoid a problem. But now the problem is here. And in many ways, it's the continuation of an ancient conflict that's been going on for ages and ages. Most likely, I would say, I'd boil it down this way, I can't say for certain, but I would suggest Mordecai refuses to bow for two reasons. Remember, two is throughout this book, so that's in keeping with the spirit. One, 
Only God deserves the kind of honor and devotion that Haman is demanding. Perhaps in Mordecai's mind, to obey this command, much like for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down to the statue, would be to break the first and second commandments. And two, perhaps more than one, this guy's an Amalekite, a descendant of Agag himself. You're not going to find me bowing. Agag me with a spoon, if you will. That just came to me now. I regret it all. Now, this might sound petty to us. I know who your great-great-great-great-grandfather is, and I don't like him. But remember, this is in the Old Covenant. And consider the words of God himself in Deuteronomy 25. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So we would say, you know, from our point of view, come on, forgive and forget. It's been hundreds of years. He's remembering God saying, you shall not forget. In the Old Covenant, remember, it's a picture of God's people, which will be a spiritual people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, but the picture is of a national people. And the picture of the enemies is of the Gentile nations around them trying to snuff them out and defeat God's purpose. So I think those are the two reasons. And likewise, I think Haman's overreaction to this is probably due to two reasons. First, he's now been thoroughly humiliated. When someone comes and says, this person has been, has been defying you day after day after day, and everyone knew about it but you. That's like when you find out your zipper was down, and no one told you, and it's been three hours or something. He's embarrassed. A small man like this is not going to deal well with that kind of humiliation. Second, the man doing the humiliating is a Jew. The historic arch enemies of his people who had all but wiped them off the face of the earth. Now, finally, I've got the upper hand, and I think I can bring about some revenge. And this is Haman at his Ahasuerusist. Someone he deems beneath him has not immediately obeyed his commandment. Sound familiar? He flies off the handle with a completely disproportionate knee-jerk response, emphasis on the jerk and for the second time in the book of Esther, a personal issue between two people, which should have been rather small, becomes a nationwide affair. There's all sorts of just warnings in this, cautionary tales wrapped up in this stuff. This goes out to the farthest corners of the empire by the fastest horses that Persia has to offer. Starting with one guy saying, I'm not going to bow down to him because my faith will not permit me. In verse 6, I think we see another great irony. We read that he disdained to go after Mordecai alone, but decided to go after everybody. And you can't see this very easily in your English Bible, but maybe write a note that the word there for disdain or scorn is the same word we saw back in chapter 1, verse 17. Remember, they, they all came around, uh, all the wisest men came around King Ahasuerus and said, we have to do something here because if people find out that your wife defied you, Word will spread, and then all the wives in all of Persia are going to look upon their husbands with disdain. Same Hebrew word. Where is the disdain really? Where does it reside? In the hearts of the leaders. They're projecting it onto everyone else. Haman hadn't even noticed the slight at first, not until it's pointed out, and then the enemy embeds it in his mind and spirit to the point where he can think of nothing else, and he even gets to the, the place where he can't sleep at night 
Man, Mordecai is living rent-free in his head, and it's driving him crazy. But there's something even deeper going on here, even deeper than a centuries-old beef between two clans in the ancient Near East. Because while God isn't mentioned in the book here, not by name, neither is Satan. But clearly, this ongoing war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that begins in Genesis chapter 3 is continuing here. And the court of the Persian Empire is now the battlefield. Satan is using this man's arrogance and rage to try and change the course of redemptive history to snuff out that messianic line before the Messiah can come and save us from our sins. In many ways, this is kind of an Advent book. Or just keep telling yourself that as I preach it through Advent. But that same ancient feud continues today. Not between Agagites and Benjamites, but the greater conflict between light and darkness. Reading the book of Revelation, it's pictured for us in many different ways. The dragon versus the lamb, I think, is the most uh, kind of compelling for me. And it's something that has been going on through all of the pages of Scripture and all of the age of the church since then. Think about the refusal to bow down to a system that rejects everything God has set in place. To, to say, I will not bow before your statue. I will not bow before your sinful uh, edicts. I will not bow. The Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus, when they are commanded, if it's a male child was born, kill the child. And they say, oh, you know what? We just, we can't keep up. They give birth so very fast. They won't bow. Elijah in 1 Kings 18, and actually all of Elijah's life, he won't go along with any of the edicts. And he finds himself then an enemy of the state and hunted, but still he will not bow. Think of the Magi, if we're thinking of, of Advent. Magi, who were almost certainly Persian, by the way, they were told, when you found that baby, you come back to me and tell me where he is. And they say, no, we're not going to do what he says because we've been warned by God in a dream that he is up to no good. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John stand before the Sanhedrin. Hey, you decide whether we need to obey you or obey God. And then in the very next chapter, all 12 do the same thing. Or we think of Jesus himself. He stands before Pilate and even submits himself to Pilate's earthly authority, but will not bow and will not recant what he has taught and the reason that he came as our Savior. Now, as we look at this whole thing now and say, how does this affect my life. This is, again, another very over-the-top thing going on. Someone who, who is insulted and decides that the right answer is genocide, and we say, what on earth? I, I never do that. Good for me. It's very easy to say that Haman is, is literally the worst. He's barely provoked and jumps right into the nuclear option right away like a legit supervillain, yet we all have the potential to let our anger burn within us when someone insults us, or even fails to show us the respect we think we're due, to let that kind of like a, a pebble in our shoe begin to rub us raw. Yes, it's an extreme example. You didn't make a big enough deal about me, and so ethnic cleansing. And it's beyond the pale because this book is full of satirical kind of vibe. And yet, the absurd extremes may not be present in our lives, but self-focused escalation when we've been insulted often is. I think the advent of the internet has made this even easier and even more of a problem. But I think of, you know, you think of uh, 
I, I think I've used before, the illustration of the untouchables. Sean Connery's great speech about the Chicago way. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. I got all sorts of other impressions, too. That was spot on. But the notion that if you come at me with this, I'm going to just bring it up a little bit. And in our lives, it doesn't usually involve knives and guns, but it involves words. And our tongues are far more destructive than any other weapon one can imagine, according to James chapter 3. We need to be careful of this sort of thing, this Haman, Ahasuerus, overreaction, wherein you insult me, you hurt me, and I come back and hurt you just a little bit more. That isn't even holding to eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Th those, those words are from the Old Testament law. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth was there to limit punishment, not to encourage personal vengeance. It was there to guarantee proportionality in punishment. All, all just societies have to have proportional punishments when someone commits a crime or, or a, 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 some kind of injustice. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Romans 12, we read, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I've become more and more convinced that the reason many Christians don't do this well is because they are living in a fantasy land where they don't have enemies. If you ask somebody, hey, think of one of your enemies, and they say, oh, I have no enemies. You don't? Really? Think harder. Or maybe you do and you don't know it. If you're proclaiming the gospel, you've probably got some enemies. It's okay. Jesus had enemies. What matters is how you deal with them. Love them. Pray for them. If you have no enemies because you're so spiritual, you're more spiritual than Jesus, I guess. But knowing who they are is the first step to loving them, feeding them, giving them something to drink, and in so doing, heaping burning coals on their heads. Our hearts should yearn for mercy and peace, not vengeance. It's a trite saying, but I can't help but appreciate how clever it is that an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. And it is true when we begin to abuse the notion. Because in our flesh, we can't help but put a little extra English in there when we strike back. And a little bit more of a, a barb when you insult me or embarrass me. This official Haman, he is mad. And it makes me think of, of MAD, the acronym M-A-D. You know that one? Mutually Assured Destruction. I remember one day crying, and my dad said, what's wrong? And I said, well, my sister just told me that the Soviets have all these nuclear missiles pointed at us. And you know what he said? Yeah, but we have a bunch pointed at them, too. <laughs> they know that if they push the button, we push the button. And I, he left thinking he had comforted me, and I was just like, <laughs> Mutually Assured Destruction. And that is often the end result when we begin this sort of cycle. You know, King Agag was killed under King Saul's reign, but at the same time, King Agag brought an end to King Saul's reign. In fact, brought the downfall of Saul's whole family, his whole house. How? Because as soon as Samuel had done what Saul wouldn't do and cut him into pieces before the Lord, he turned to him and he said to him, rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, 
Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And the Spirit of God left him, and he was no longer the Lord's anointed. And David came and replaced him. They had taken each other out in the process. There are times when we ought to be honored, though. What do we do then? Some Christians struggle with this. I mean, yeah, i got to make sure that I'm not demanding everyone fall down on their face and, and, and worship as I walk by. But what about when I ought to be honored? How do I do that? Parents, for example. Scripture says, honor your father and mother. And as Christian parents, we bring up our children and help bring up our grandchildren to respect their elders and honor their parents and, and those who come before them. And I have to say that this is a great example where we can show grace and mercy and help to form character in that way. When, when I am not honored by my child, which in my case happens rather rarely, is my response most concerned with helping my child grow? When, when you respond, is your response most concerned with helping your, your children or grandchildren grow into godly young men and women or in getting what you've got coming? Is it proportional or is it over the top because you're angry and responding out of anger. The same questions, by the way, can be asked of your employees or anyone else who owes you honor to whom it is due. Is it something that, that you're putting the focus on God, or is it something that's drawing the focus to yourself? Is your response rooted in law, demanding a change in heart, which is something that law can't do? Or is it filled with grace, which can actually soften hearts? I think when we deal with our children, I mean, we just were studying Ephesians 6, and that's where you find this warning, do not provoke your children to wrath. There's a responsibility that we have to gently, helpfully bring them into a place of honoring us. Because demanding honor and respect doesn't work, as we see here with Haman and Mordecai. It has the absolute opposite effect. 1 Peter 3.7, we read about husbands loving our wives and living in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. Since they're heirs, heirs with us of grace, of life, so that our prayers may not be hindered. You ever think of that, men? You don't honor your wife, your prayers will be hindered. They're not going to make it to heaven until you make things right. That's sobering thought. I know many guys, though, get really into the, the thick of the Bible and think they're very, very... Uh, unbending literalists and fundamentalists in their faith, and they say, well, my wife owes me honor. She better respect me as the head of the household and immediately guarantee no one's going to respect them as the head of the household. This sort of thing can't be demanded. Look at how he talks about this in 1 Peter 3. Look at how Paul talks about mutual submission and loving one another, putting the other first. And then in 1 Peter 2, he even says for us to submit to and respect and honor the emperor. All this stuff gets a lot easier when we say, what is it that sits at the center of my response to any given situation? What is it that sits at the center, the fulcrum in my heart? How it's going to tip? How am I going to respond? And I think that the answer is, we have to either be someone who's rooted in the unchanging character of God and his law, or someone who's rooted in our own kind of fits of anger and being offended and wanting to get even. The picture often used in the scripture is a plumb line. By the way, I texted Larry and said, do you have a, a, a plumb line I can use? And he brought me this one that he said was very Chuck. <laughs> Chuck Gibbs had uh, tied 
some kind of weight or, or something at the end of his string, and this was what he used for a, a plumb line. But this is, it looks like such a simple thing. It is such a simple thing, but it's such an important tool in the ancient world. This is how you build pyramids. This is how you build walls super, super high that don't just fall over. You have a plumb line, gravity will pull the weight down, and you get a perfect straight line. If something is plumb, if a wall is plumb, if a structure is plumb, gravity holds it together, continually strengthening it. If it's not, gravity works to topple it over time. And a plumb line like this is used poetically, metaphorically, throughout Scripture. Isaiah 28, 17, I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Again and again, the notion of God giving us that true plumb, that absolute, here is God's character, here is what he says. The old God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Only I think we can take the I believe it out because even if I don't believe it, God said it, that settles it. Are we building on the unchanging character of God or on our own whims and rage and sense of revenge and grudge? Furthering the cause of Christ in the ancient war of light versus darkness or stoking little flame-out fires in our own grudges and conflicts? Is there someone you, right now, before you leave God's house, need to forgive in your heart. I can promise you that if you do that, you will have a better Advent and you will have a better experience of thinking of Christ coming and celebrating His arrival together with the saints. You'll sleep better at night. There's part of your brain where someone maybe set up shop, maybe they didn't even mean to, but like Mordecai living rent-free in Haman's head. You know that word forgive, ephiemi in the, in the Greek, it means to release. I love that, to set free. Because in setting that person free, you also are set free from the burden of holding on to bitterness and anger and ending up like Haman. We see here the difference also between using power and authority for others or using it for ourselves, even at the cost of others. This becomes now, instead of comparing Christ with Ahasuerus, the contrast of Christ and Haman. And it's practically the same thing. Jesus came and used his authority, all authority in heaven and earth given to him to save us, even at the cost of his own life and suffering. Haman will use his authority to lift himself up, even at the cost of millions of human beings. All too often, without the over-the-top extremes, we act more like Herod or Haman than like Christ, seeking our own honor over God's and using our own position to promote ourselves, even to the detriment of those around us. Think, think about David's census, right? He says, I want to feel like a big shot, even though God told me not to number my, my troops and my people, I'm going to do it. Very much like Caesar's census later on. Now, God used that, but then think about David at his best. What was his anger about when he heard Goliath out there taunting and shouting? That you insulted me? No, I cannot bear to hear someone defy the name of the living God and blaspheme the name of my God, and so I'm going to go out and fight this guy. When someone was mocking him, hurling insults at him, he just kept on walking. A guy named Shimei, remember this? When he was fleeing from Absalom, 
a guy from Saul's house, Shimei, walks along on the other side of a ravine, so he's more or less safe, just shouting, just trash talk the whole way. And Joab's like, let me kill him. And David's like, don't worry about it. We've got bigger things going on. And he isn't drawn into that sort of Haman-like response. That's where you see David, you go, ah, yeah, he is a man after God's own heart when he's after God's own heart. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, even while you refuse to bow down to the world's wicked system. Give honor where honor is due to leaders and authorities, but do not bow down when they demand something of you that will command you to break a commandment. I think of the great example is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They honored the king, but they said, we cannot bow down to your statue. We cannot further your wicked system. In fact, perhaps they honored the king by not bowing down to his statue, ultimately showing him the power of the one true God. This Advent, let's have this be our prayer, that our hearts would be those that will not bow down, but also will not turn in vengeance. Our hearts would be defiant when it comes to the enemy, but tender when it comes to our enemies. That during the days between now and Christmas Eve, when we gather together and turn off the lights and see what this looks like with the lights off and the candles burning, that's going to be exciting. That in that in-between, we ask God to be working in our hearts. That if there's bitterness hanging out there, that he would take it away. That he would shine the light of his spirit on it, that we might offer it up to him, knowing he will cast it as far from us as the east is from the west. That if we are living our lives just being blown this way and that by every wind of whatever chemical is going through my brain, that God would say, here is the plumb line. And that we would say, Lord, make me straight. Show me your, your truth. Show me your way that I might have your life everlasting. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message that we see here that there is danger in following our own anger and following our own carnal desires, that, Lord, there is also danger in the short term in defying those who would do that. But we pray, Lord, that we would remember in the end we are rewarded for, for faithfulness, that in the end, well, we may not have been given uh, position, promotion, reward in this life, there is waiting for us eternal life. Lord, may we live our lives plumb, not swinging back and forth, but straight up and down by the word of our God. Lord, may we remember that you are always at work. When these different reverses are happening near the beginning of Esther, we all anticipate the great reversal at the end where everything is made right. And Lord, we, your followers, even as we, in this spirit of Advent, think of your first coming, your first Advent, anticipate your return when you will make everything right. Help us, Lord, to live in light of that day. In your holy name we pray. Amen.